Well, good morning. I want to, yeah, you can clap for Brent. He's good. We love you, Brent. All right. um, Before we continue on, uh, this morning, if you're a guest, I want to welcome you. My name is Greg Harris, senior pastor here at Olive Branch. Glad that you are here this morning. For the the church congregation, I want to also uh, invite you guys to consider the FIT team. We've been talking about this, we talked about a couple weeks ago. There's a gap at our church, uh, the gap between those who need people to serve and those who want to serve, and sometimes they can't seem to meet. And so our solution to this was to create kind of like a bridge called the FIT team. Our FIT team is Anything and everything that happens on Sunday mornings outside of our children's worship and tech uh, and preaching that, that needs, that helps you guys out. Checking out the, making sure security is in the parking lot, make sure there's coffee for you guys and hospitality, people greeting, those kind of things are our fit team. And what we're currently looking for so that this can launch at Easter is some of you to step up into positions in these places, whether it's simply uh, once a Sunday being part of a security team that, or a facilities team, because, hey, who doesn't like a clean bathroom? Amen? I mean, and who doesn't enjoy um, being able to invite their neighbors or their friends or their family to church? And you're, you're able to say, see, okay, this place is clean. It's nice. We care about our environment. We care about our buildings. And so that's kind of what the facilities team does. The host team, obviously, is the ushers and greeters in the room. Greeters are those who are shaking hands. Guys, we just need some of you guys to step up into that. But um, and more importantly is a few of these teams, we need people to take, uh, take uh, become like the, the coach, the lead of that team. We've, we've seen the coffee team taken. I believe we're, we're seeing the host team going to have a lead, but we're also needing people to, um, to lead that greeting team. We're also looking for some people for stepping into security and things like that. And we want to encourage you guys to consider that, either step up or step in. I know that we have um, the youth ministry, youth team in here. Guys, that includes you. Um, you can be greeters. You can help make coffee. You just because um, you are relegated to a foreign territory down the street. I'm just kidding. No, you get your own, pro- your own place to hang. Doesn't mean you can't be a part of the life of the church. So I want to encourage all of you, if you're considering to step up or step in in one of these places to help us fill that gap, out there in the, in the foyer is that bulletin board. Cards are available on that. You can pull one off, fill it out, drop it in the bucket of the team that you're interested in joining. And so that's available there. All that was to uh, just continue that forward, like to have that solved before Easter. And so I want to pray with you guys as we get into the Word. So would you join with me? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to get into your word. Thank you for the opportunity we have to get together on Sunday, to celebrate together, to be a part of the community together, to see one another and encourage each other, to sing together to you, Lord, that for what you've given us because you are worthy. And God, to be in the word so that we're all on the same page and can have conversations throughout the week with each other about what you're teaching us and what you're leading us in. Would you just continue to um, bless these conversations in this time um, as we get into your word? It's in Jesus' name we pray pray. Amen. How many of you remember your, your first crush? Do you guys, how many of you guys remember your first crush? Anybody in here? All right. I love that some junior hires raise their hand. That's awesome. Um, I was in sixth grade in Washington, D.C. when I realized my first crush. Um, her name was Julie, and we were, at the, we were walking around in D.C., and I remember sitting down in the bus, and she was sitting behind me, and I'm like, I had these butterflies like flowing through my stomach, like, I'm like, mom, when I look at this girl, I feel it. She's like, oh, you like her. I'm like, yeah, I guess I do. You know, and it kind of just erupted into my life where I wanted to talk to her, but I was way too shy and very awkward because 
I was in that junior high awkward phase, and I, I don't think I came out of it. But anyway, the reality was that I, I, I just never really engaged, even though I liked her all through junior high. I finally went to the same high school, tried connecting with her, and never, nothing really ever happened. We never went out. It was just kind of that crush, and it went away. And, but later, when I became a Christian in my senior, uh, my senior year of high school, I, I started going to the church that in town, and she was part of the church. She'd given her life to Christ, and we, I was all pumped. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. This girl that I cared about years ago, now she's my sister in Christ. The crush never came back. It was no big deal, but it was fun to be in Bible studies and see her grow and, and get in these engagements, so it was devastating to me when one day I was sitting over in, at, the, at the coffee shop out in Norco, at the uh, Starbucks that was out in Norco. We were sitting in the patio, and a group of us friends had been talking and actually debating over some issues, and uh, they left, and I found me and her just sitting alone. Only time this had ever happened in my life, and I'm sitting across from this first crush of mine having this conversation with her about how she has begun to just wonder and, and, um, and, and question whether Jesus was truly God. And she began to debate with me from John how she was going to write this book about how John proves that he's only a man and all these things. And within time, and I'm not quite sure how her story ended, but it was very evident she was beginning to back off everything she had believed and everything she had held to. And I left that conversation just heartbroken. And it, it did. It put, continued to bring, there's a very tumultuous time in my faith as I was debating through these things myself and, and, it, and it only added to the struggle as you're reading the scriptures and suddenly I, I land on verses like in Hebrews chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. A verse like that freaks you out if you're a Christian, or at least it should. I mean, you sit there and you read that and you're going like, man, I continue to sin. I continue to wrestle with sin. I continue to have these things. And in fact, sometimes when the Spirit of God's yelling at me, don't do it, and I still do it, I begin to back up and go, wait a minute. Is there no longer a sacrifice for me? Have I lost my faith? Did Jesus just, did I kind of just fall out and, of this faith thing and now I'm, I'm out? And, you know, maybe you're walking around going, bad, now I'm so confident. Maybe you should let this verse sink in for a second. As you think about all the besetting sins, the bursts of, outbursts of anger, the, the, the lust, the, the constant greed, or maybe the gossip that comes out of your mouth, or, the, or the, just the, the apathy about Jesus at times that comes through our lives. I mean, shouldn't this make us worry? And my friend can walk away. Was, am I on my way out? What is going on? And it, it frightened me. And it may be some of you are struggling with this very question today. Have you lost your, your faith? Do you need to come forward to Jesus every single week? Is, is that how we deal with this? And I want to give you some hope this morning. I want to speak from the book of John what Jesus is going to say. And I believe what Jesus is going to clearly tell us is that God's victory assures we'll live in eternity. That God's victory, his His. His conquering and defeat and, and, and victory over a particular problem assures, gives us confidence that we are going to live in eternity. 
where we find this is in John chapter 10. So if you're, if you're wrestling with what we just said or you're thinking about it, join with me. We're going to John chapter 10, verse 22 through 42. Grab a Bible. You're going to want to pull it out. If you don't have your Bible, it's in the seats. You can pull that out or you can uh, simply open your app on your phone and, and join with us on John 10. We're going to look at 22 through 42. The Bible's in the seats. It's page 896 and you can be right there with us. Now, Jesus has just had this conversation about the shepherds, him being the good shepherd, we're the sheep, and, and the conversation that, that Kevin led us through last week. And so it says, at that time in verse 22. So we're kind of picking up in the same time period of what's going on. It says, at the time, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So um, he's in the temple in the largest area, not down in the bottom where it'd be all cold in the wintertime, but he's walking amongst the majority of the people, and it is the Feast of Dedication. We know this feast as Hanukkah. Hanukkah today is is the remnants of the Feast of Dedication, an eight-day feast, which was really their 4th of July celebration. It was their Independence Day celebration. And the Independence Day celebration went on because in their world, they had been conquered by one of the strongest, most powerful empires the world had ever seen, namely the Greek Empire. And the Greek Empire had sought at a certain point, a couple hundred years earlier than this, to to destroy all remnants of the Jewish belief system and culture and and only bring Greek culture. A man named Aetiochus Epiphanes of the Seleucid Empire, which was a part of the Greek Empire, um, a broken piece off, had aimed at this situation. And a ragtag group of rebels under a man named Maccabeus the Hammer, and uh, he... uh, He rises up with this ragtag group of of soldiers and they attack and they win against Greece. They beat back the the Greco empire. It's this whole story. I don't have time to get into it. But when they rededicate the temple, it is a celebration of their independence. And suddenly here the people are celebrating for eight days straight of this celebrated independence. And, and so this is on the mind of the people as Jesus is walking around. So no wonder that these people have a question. The Jews gathered around him, verse 24 says, and, and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And see, the Jews had a problem. It was no longer the, the, the Greco the, the Greece empire, the, the now it was the Roman empire. They'd come in and conquered them many years, many decades earlier. And all Israel wanted was to be free. All the Jews wanted was to be free. And so they had this hope that this one called the Christ was going to rise up and kick Rome out. And they were going to then take over the world and have a Jewish empire. And so they were looking for this Christ. So when they see Jesus who's claiming these things, they're going, tell us plainly, are you the Christ. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, guys, come on. There are dumb questions to ask in this world. This is one of those dumb ones. I have answered this over and over and over again. As he says in verse 25, I told you and you do not believe the works I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. In other words, he says, People who I'm their leader understand what I've brought. You see, the problem is the Jews had a problem, right? They had Rome as their problem, so they were looking for a solution in a particular leader, and they weren't finding it in Jesus because Jesus was bringing a solution to a different problem. Isn't that the human predicament? I mean, how many of us are walking around with a marital problem? 
or a financial problem, a health problem. And and oftentimes we know that if I have this problem, I go to a particular set of leaders. If If I've got a psychological problem, I'm struggling with anger, I go to a psychologist, a counselor. You know what? If I've got a marital problem, I go to a marriage specialist, a counselor. If I've got a financial problem, I go to a financial counselor. Our world runs to particular leaders when we have particular problems. And here's what often happens. Is that some of you are here today because you've been through the financial counselor. You've been through the marital counselor. You've been through all these health experts. And now all you've got is God. And as a lots ditch effort, we come into the church and we go, God, can you help me out here? I'm dying. I got health problems. I, I'm struggling in my marriage. I, I need your answers. And so pastors have jumped into this and we give you five good ways to make your marriage better. Four amazing things to be a better you. And you come to churches and we flock to them and we have these lists of to-dos and how to do them and we do them and it disappoints us when it doesn't work. And some people have left churches going, does this Christianity thing even work? And it's because we've come to leaders with our, for solutions, but we came to Jesus and he was not even offering that solution. In fact, some of us hear what Jesus is offering and go, why do I even need that? I, I don't understand. Because Jesus is offering as a leader victory over a different problem. He's offering an ultimate victory over the ultimate human problem. See, the human predicament is based in two issues. You and I are all, no matter who we are, wrestling with these two things, sin and death. See, if you think about it, sin is this reality, this proclivity to evil. Even, even though we don't think we're evil, we end up doing these things. That's why we call them mistakes. We don't mean to do evil. We just happen to do it. We just wind up choosing the wrong path. We wind up, outbursts of anger come raging through us. We don't want that. Lust comes roaring through into our eyes. We don't want that. Oh, we turn around, we tell that story, and we realize, oh, that wasn't my story to tell. And we've gossiped. We don't want that. But we, we realize we're struggling with this. And what sin does is horrible. It's like an acid. It begins to eat your soul away. Because we've got to lie about it. We've got to shut it into our closets. We've got to make sure nobody knows. Or it begins to eat away our relationships. Suddenly the bonds of our marriage become weaker because of our selfishness and our sin. Our friendships become more distant because they don't, they don't want to be with us because of our selfishness and our sin. Our, our, our relationships, even in our workplaces, become destroyed because we're greedy or we want to control and have power and we're insecure and all these things because of our sin. And on the flip side, we've got to solve these problems quick because... YOLO, baby. You only live once because guess what? You're going to die. And so the world around you starts telling you you're going to die. Get in the gym so you can live longer. Take the supplements so you can live longer. Make sure you get out there and see your health practitioner and don't smoke and don't eat and don't drink and don't do anything because it's all going to give you cancer and kill you. And the reality is our, we are an obsessed culture with not dying. So we, we don't want to die and we don't want our kids to die. So we go to our politicians and say, make rules so we don't die. And we bring our politicians in to make rules so our children are safe. We run to our, our teachers and we say, we want our kids to be educated so they can make lots of money so they don't die and they can afford to live longer. There's all of this stuff that's based, all of our problems we come running to leaders and for are answered in the fact that there's two problems, there's sin and there's death. And Jesus says, I'm the victor over both. I've conquered sin and I've conquered death. And what I want to deliver to you guys 
is hope. That God's victory can assure that you will live in eternity. And so he goes on. Notice he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. They've made me their leader. And I give to them eternal life and they will never perish And so notice what he does. God's victory assures this because Jesus offers victory over death and sin. He offers eternal life and he offers you not to perish or be destroyed. That's another way to translate that word. And what's interesting about this is Jesus literally says, I'm going to give you life. Now, this isn't just like you get to live forever, like... I'm breathing for eternity. No, it's real life, energized, valuable, purpose-filled life. That's what eternal life is. It's God's kind of life given to us. It is life with meaning and purpose. It is life with full value and knowledge of who you are. It is life with pure joy and energy. So we don't have to jump out of planes and stuff to feel alive. We are alive. And this is the promise that he says, I have conquered death. And in my conquering of death, in his victory, he hands you eternal life. He gives it to you. Note that you don't earn it. You don't do a thousand push-ups to get it. You don't go to all the right practitioners. No, he just says, here, you're following me. The spoils of my victory come to you. You get eternal life and you will never perish. You'll never be destroyed by your sin because ultimately sin must be dealt with. God who is perfectly good must deal with every single sin or he's not good. He's got to punish it all and deal with it perfectly. And that's what the Jews knew was perishing. It was a place called hell. Ultimately, where all the sin would be punished would be in a place called hell and humanity would perish. And so he says, no, I don't want you to perish. You're not going to perish because he would bear hell on himself. And in his victory over the punishment of sin, his victory over sin and death, you and I wind up having life. And we can be assured that we're going to live in eternity and not die in eternity because of God's victory. And so God's victory does, it assures you. In fact, very clearly, it assures that we'll live in eternity. Notice how Jesus finishes the sentence in verse 28. I stopped on purpose. He said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What an interesting term. No one's going to snatch them out of my hand. If you go back and look through, your, through the Old Testament, and you, if you have a Bible software like I do, you can do this pretty easily. But you look back, and every time out of my hand comes up, it's a king or God speaking of their great victory in a conquest. And no, no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. No one will ever take my victory from my hand. You can't take these cities out of my hand. You can't take these people I've conquered out of my hand. God is saying, you will never take my authority out of my hand. There's this this grip that they have that is iron strong. It's not going to be removed. And it's it's the statement of a conquering king. His victory is so assured it will never be reversed. And so Jesus, looking at these people looking for independence from Rome, he turns and says, you're looking for the wrong solution. I've given you a great solution. I've given you the solution over sin and over death. And I give you eternal life. And I give you the right to, you'll never perish You'll never be thrown into the judgment and no one can snatch you out of my hand. And you go, wow, that's awesome. What assurance. But Greg, what about that Hebrews passage? Didn't I just say that if we keep on deliberately sinning, you're done, out, no more promise for you, no more sacrifice. Don't even try to come back to Jesus. It ain't gonna happen. And that's concerning. 
Because if Jesus' grip isn't strong enough to keep us away from our own sin, what do we do? Because is that what we're saying? Our sin is more powerful than Jesus? Our sin is more powerful than Jesus' victory? Because that's really the fear. And those of you who are wrestling with whether or not your sin has removed you from Christ and removed you from your salvation, you have to wrestle with this idea. Do you think your sin is more powerful than Christ's victory and the victory of God over sin and death? And yet, Jesus goes on. He, he wants to give you this assurance. So he tells you how strong his grip is. Look at verse 29. He says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Underline that in your Bible. Greater than what? All. All. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He says, the Father is so powerful. He has them in his hand. He gave them to me. Nobody gets them out of his hand. He's greater than all. Clearly, the Father is greater than our sin. He's greater than us. Clearly, the Father is greater than any tempter who can try to get you out. More powerful than the devil. More powerful than this world. More powerful than anything that you and I could fear. No, the Father is the greatest of all. He, no one takes anything out of his hand. Wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus and the Father were one? Wait a minute, that's what he says in verse 30. I and the Father are one. The grip the Father has is the grip that I have. Jesus' hand is the very hand of God himself holding you, giving you the assurance that his victory assures that you will live in eternity. Not your ability, not your strength. We're a mess. I'm a mess. My sin's all over the place. I can't trust that. I can only trust his victory over sin. And so I could wrestle all the time with, well, how I'm doing it. Man, this stinks, and I'm not doing it too hot. And God, are you even gonna, are you gonna even accept me? But I gotta stop and remember, God's victory is what wins. God's victory is what overcomes. And I could wrestle and struggle. And if you are right now wrestling and struggling and wondering, did I lose my salvation? That Hebrew verse has got you freaked out. Let me just assure you for a second, if you're freaked out that you lost your salvation, you probably didn't. Because the love for Christ still dwells in you. And those of us who love Christ, we're the very ones who worry about whether we're going to be with him or not. We're the ones who are worried, man, did I lose it? Because I don't want to lose him. I don't want to lose my relationship with Christ. I don't want to lose what he's done. I want to lose that victory. It's a lot like a, a marriage as we see. There are two kinds that we'll run into. Some come into our offices and their marriage is in massive crisis and, and they're about to get divorced and everything's falling apart and they sit there going, I don't know how I got here. How in the world did we ever? And they are very difficult to bring back together. There are others who literally, they come to us and they go like, we've been married only a couple of years and we really need to talk. We're like, oh wow, what's going on? They're like, oh, nothing bad. We just, we just really want to make sure we never get divorced because we're really worried about it. You know, people who really worry that they're going to get divorced and do everything they possibly can to not get divorced often never get divorced. As those who thought, oh, divorce, don't even ever have to worry about that. They find themselves in one day in a crisis because they've not been keeping care of their love and their relationship. And so it's interesting that those of us who are constantly worried about, oh man, am I going to lose my faith, oftentimes have very robust faiths and you're just beating yourself up with false guilt. 
And what you need to do is realize that all of us struggle with sin. You hear me? Amen, church? There is annoying sins in our lives that just don't go away. They just keep pestering us and keep showing up. And yeah, you give in to them. And you're just like, ah! That's reality. Welcome to being a sinner who is saved by grace. Kind of a problem, right? And the reality, though, is that in our frustration, we give in sometimes. My, my, my friends, when I get into that place, and I get into that place, I, I, when I've given into a sin, I'm just like, I shouldn't even be a pastor. What am I thinking? One of my, one of my close friends always reminds me, Greg, it's not that you struggle with sin. The danger is when you stop struggling with sin. See, if you've given into your sin, if you stop fighting and you're just like, this is who I am, this is what I do, Jesus has to deal with that, and I, I'm okay. That's the most dangerous position. It's when you've given in and you don't think you've sinned and you're all good with that, that's when Hebrews 10 comes into play because you've known the truth. Hey, he's just kind of whatever it. I can do whatever I want. And that in there is the danger. If you are struggling with your sin, you're still fighting it, and you love Christ, don't think that you're, 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 you're done. His victory, God's victory assures you that you're going to live in eternity, not your victories. And so it leads me to a couple of points. First, a worry. What about my loved one who's walked away? What about your child who you brought to church, who went through the children's ministry, was excited to be maybe even the president of the youth group? Now they want nothing to do with it. What about those, those friends who you saw give their life to Christ, were exuberant and excited reading their Bibles, and now they just they don't even want to talk to you because they know you're going to ask them if they're coming to church with you today. What about those people that we love, our family members, our friends, our coworkers? What, what do I do with them? My heart hurts for my friend. The answer is that you still trust that Jesus is powerful. He's still God. And if, he's, if they're in his hand, then you can trust that perhaps inside their soul this whole time, they have been duking it out with the Spirit of God. And they think they're winning in some way, but the Spirit of God will never leave them alone. And one day, they, the reason they don't want to come to church with you is because the second they break in here, their love for Christ will overwhelm them again, and they will give back in to their Lord. Maybe that's all it's taking. Maybe the reality is that in their wrestling match, God will remove them from this earth before they can finally give up in his grace. And he does that. And the response to you and to me is simply this. Trust that Christ is God. His hand is powerful and that he has assured us in his victory that those who are in his hand are going to have eternal life. And when you do that, you keep praying for them. You keep pointing to, pointing to the way of the cross and you keep loving on them because their story isn't over yet. And who are we to say that this journey that they're on is not the very journey God desired for them to go through that they may be used by him in a great way when they return? And who's to say that you know their heart and their wrestling match? For we like to say this in our staff, no one is beyond hope. Hope, church. In your worry, hope. And yet there's a warning. Don't think you can just do whatever you want. If you're in here today and you're like, yeah, his victory is the assurance of my eternity. I'm in on this. I just got to get out of everything free card. Sin like I want. Sin like a sailor. Be crazy. And Jesus going to forgive me. Yeah, man. No, time out. Where's the love of Christ in that? 
You see, what's the fruit of when you really are following Jesus Christ is you love Christ and you live for Christ and you share Christ wherever you go. It comes out of you. It's the natural response of a disciple to love our Lord, to want to do what he's told us to do and to live after him. But if we're sitting around going like, I'm a Christian. Yes, I am. Well, would you go to church? Yeah, I don't do that. I have my own personal Bible studies. When's the last time you read your Bible? Yeah, a few months ago. Do you pray? Yeah, when I need to at dinner. Are you a Well, I'm not going to judge your heart for a second, but hold on a second. Where's your love for Christ? Just because you hang out in the garage at your house doesn't make you a car. <laughs> Labels are nothing. In fact, there's a better label for somebody who claims Christ and doesn't love Jesus. It's called hypocrite. In fact, John calls you a liar. If we say we have fellowship with him and while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And I mean to hit you hard because what's at stake is destruction and perishing in hell. Please don't fool yourself. Please don't think you're a Christian and try to hide behind a label when you have no love for Christ. There's no escaping hell without a love for Christ. There's no escaping hell without following him. He gives it to his followers. You can follow a lot of different leaders and, a lot, and oftentimes the hardest one to let go of is the following of yourself. And it may be who you're following. And I want to challenge you to turn. I want to challenge you to receive and follow Jesus. He gives you eternal life. He gives you assurance of that eternal life because God's victory assures you that you'll live in eternity. And it's God's victory that assures you you'll live in eternity. Look at how Jesus continues. Verse 33, or sorry, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones to stone, again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, for blas- but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself to be God. That is the worst accusation in their world. You, God is one. You don't claim you're God. And Jesus goes, I'm God. He claims the Father and I are one. My grip is God's grip. I am God on earth. And they're like, okay, you're done, dude. We're going to kill you. You're crazy. Let's go. They pick the stones up. And then Jesus defends himself. But here's the thing. The Jewish people don't think he's God. They want to argue he's not. And this is not uncommon in our world. You're going to meet tons of people in your life that are going to try to argue with you. Jesus is not God. He was just a good teacher. Or they're going to tell you he is a God of many gods. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Socinians out there are going to claim he's just God's representative on earth. He's not really a God. Yeah, he's God in a label, but he's not God of heaven. Or you've got the Mormons who are going to claim he's one of the gods of heaven. In fact, you too one day can become a God if you get engaged in everything that they offer. And then you move on to the, another group of people who claim, yeah, Jesus is a God of many gods because everything's God called the Hindus and the Buddhists. And they'll claim he's a God, or the Muslims are going to claim no way is he a God, and God doesn't have a son. In fact, there's only one God, and Jesus is just, a, just a, the Messiah teacher that we should listen to, and he's going to point to Muhammad later and tell us who we need to believe in. There are lots of versions of Jesus. 
But if Jesus is not God, his grip is not strong enough to save anyone. And here the Jewish people say, you can't be God. And Jesus says, hold on, let me prove it to you. And so he dives in and he said, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. And he's actually quoting the Psalms here. Psalm 82, it's this big psalm about um, God and his power. And then you have these judges that are, that are in the psalm and he calls them gods. He says, have I not called you gods? In other words, these judges had received the word of God. They were sort of implemented amongst the people and judged people rightly by it. And when they didn't, when they didn't act rightly as God, he said, but you're going to be judged like mortal men. And so he applies the label God to human beings who have authority to judge. Now, if you want to know why Jesus is applying this to himself, he goes on to say, if I, so he goes on to say that if he calls them gods whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, he has a very high view of scripture, one word he's on. He's just dealing with gods, and that's it. And he says, look, scripture can't be broken. God spoke, it's true, stand with it. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and set into the world to be the judge, the ultimate judge? Just go back to read John chapter 5, and you'll see what Jesus is referring to. He says, hey, if he consecrated me, he set me apart and sent me into the world, and you tell me I'm blaspheming because I'm said I'm the son of God? I'm God's representative? I'm his son here on earth, representing an actually God in essence? If God can call mortal men God, and he set me apart for the mission of judging the world and saving the world... You don't, think I'm, you don't think I'm God? In essence, Jesus goes to the scripture to prove his point. And when we encounter people who want to argue about whether Jesus is God, you should know the scriptures to be able to answer them. And there are tons of scriptures. John itself is a treasure trove of these in John chapter 1, John chapter 5, John chapter 10, John chapter 21. All of these sections have scriptures explicitly stating Jesus is God. You can go into Paul and you can find it in Romans. You can find it in Titus. You can find it all through Peter. You can find it all over the place in, even in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 1, in Isaiah chapter 52, you find all these options and, uh, and places where you can find the scriptures that say Jesus is the Lord. He is God. Well, I don't have time to really go into all those details and give you that giant textbook of you know, that'd feel more like a class. The reality is that you should know them and be able to defend it because Jesus defends his deity. He defends that he is God from the text and then he defends that he is God from his works. He goes on. Verse 37. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. I think his argument was so stunning to them, they kind of like, I don't know what to do about this. We need, to, we need to arrest this guy. So he just walked away from him. But the reality is that Jesus says, here's two things. Look at the scriptures and you see that I can be God. And second, look at my works. Look at the miracles that I'm doing. Look at the things I do. Only God does these things. Only God heals in this way. Only God casts out demons like this. Only God does these things. And for us, maybe today you're here at church, somebody invited you, you're checking things out and you've got lots of questions. Maybe you didn't even realize you had questions. I'm just saying these, you're like, objection. Miracles can't happen. Awesome. I would like to argue otherwise. And you can go into our website and we did a whole series on miracles. 
last year. Just go in there and begin to examine. Listen to, the, listen to the conversation of why we believe miracles are logically possible, the evidence as they occurred, and the evidence as they occur today. And there's tons. Second reality is maybe you're just like, yeah, I don't really care about Jesus' miracles. This is all a bunch of hooey, whatever. And then I'll challenge you on this then. Then you need to make that a bunch of hooey on one issue. If you want to begin to investigate Christianity, be honest about your investigation, you investigate the resurrection and the resurrection only. See, because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection didn't happen, we're all crazy people believing a lie. Did you know that? No resurrection to Jesus, what in the world are we doing? So I want to challenge you who have questions to begin there. There are tons of documentation, tons of options and evidences out there. I can point you to books and all kinds of things. I'll just simply start you off with a series we did last year on, on our website. Again, just go there. It's called Where Faith Begins. Pick out the Easter sermon. It's on the evidences of the resurrection. And I, and I reference several key like books that you can purchase. If you're not a book reader, you can just listen to it and study it. There's lots of options and op- opportunities for you to engage whether the resurrection truly occurred or not. And it is that that should begin to move you towards whether Jesus was truly God. Because if he rose from the dead, then it meant in the Jewish context, he was not a liar. And everything he said about himself was true. And he claimed he was God. And when we have that reality and suddenly you see that God has come in, it is God's victory over sin and death that is your assurance to live in eternity. And that's the case. Because if Jesus isn't God, let's be honest, in America, in the United States, we're just guessing where we go when we die. We just, oh, we're all going to heaven. How do you know that? How are you assured of that? How are, you even, how are you even dealing with the evils of your own life? I mean, when we knew we should have been good, what do we do with that? How can we claim that we're going to heaven? It's a guess. So I want to challenge you to consider that the assurance of going to heaven is found only in the fact that Jesus is God. And God's victory assures that we're going to live in eternity. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we come before you in a reality that it's what you've given to us and nothing more. And God, I ask that you would help us to be comforted knowing that, yeah, we struggle with sin, but your victory over sin is greater. So God, we ask that you'd open our hearts up to love you more. We ask that you'd open our hearts up to live for you more. God, that we would be willing to get out there and share this great victory with others that they too might be free from these problems of sin and death. And God, for those of us in this room right now who are wrestling over whether we should receive you, I pray that you would move into their hearts, you would call them, they would hear your voice, they would join in following after you. God, that you would give them the assurance that your victory gives them eternity, eternal life. And so would you, would you just open our hearts in this time as we sing out in this song, as we, as we step out trusting you and what you've given us. In Jesus' name.